McMaster has over 210,000 alumni living in 140 countries around the world. Unconventional will introduce you to some of our alumni who are working to make our world a brighter place in their own unique way. Join me, Karen McQuig, Alumni Director at MAC, as we learn the moments that their path from MAC became unconventional. Welcome to another episode of MacCast Unconventional. Today, we have the pleasure of having Andrew Edwards, a trailblazer in the field of marine technology and exploration. From designing training simulations for marine applications to working with NATO on mine countermeasured missions, Andrew's career has been nothing short of extraordinary. Now he's taking on a new challenge, joining a startup aimed at revolutionizing ocean mining with environmentally sustainable technologies. Join us as we delve into the remarkable and very unconventional career of Andrew Edwards. Thanks for joining us for our podcast, Unconventional Andrew. And I'm going to jump in um, and ask you a question that most people may not think about when they think about people who've graduated from McMaster. So you're a graduate um, from the Faculty of Engineering, but water has played a big part of your post-McMaster career. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure, it's it's funny because, you know, I grew up in the East Coast. I was a Atlantic Canadian when I went to Mac and you know, if you'd asked me at the time, I fully would have expected that my career would have kept me in Southern Ontario, um, you know, technology hubs and a lot going on there. And when I came back out east, uh, I had some some family stuff to deal with. I figured I'd be here for sort of a year uh, and then back into Southern Ontario. And, you know, before I knew it, I found myself in a career and then married and then children. And, you know, growing up in the East Coast, you get a real appreciation for the ocean getting to work with it on a constant basis, work in it, around it. Uh, I've, you know, really extended that appreciation for for the ocean, the ocean environments, um, how important they are to us, both economically, environmentally. Yeah, it's a, it's it's been an interesting sort of path to get here, but uh, I can't imagine myself working really in any other environment. So let's go from, um, we'll go back to that, but I'm going to ask a question around like, so you mentioned you're from the East Coast. And you ended up in Hamilton at McMaster. So what drew you to, to Mac to study? I, like a lot of students, young people out east, you know, there's this draw to the big city. Um, you want to get out of the East Coast, you want to get out of the, the Atlantic provinces and, and, you know, find adventure and something a little more exciting. My older brother, who's a Mac grad as well, he ended up there mainly for their health physics program. And I went to visit him when I was in grade 12 and he was in first year. And it actually was a meeting with Bob Laurie, who was one of the undergraduate, uh, sort of incoming undergraduate advisors at the time. Um, and I fell in love with Mac sort of at first sight. You know, I got into U of T, I got into Waterloo. Those were sort of the other places I was looking, but the campus, the culture, the people, um, yeah, Mac stole my heart right from the get-go. And I had, you know, no regrets. I didn't think for a second about going anywhere else. So it's interesting you talk about, you know, the East Coast going to the big city. You know, we're right beside the biggest city in <laughs> in the country. Um, how was your, you know, how was your transition to Hamilton? It's it's a large city, but, you know, oftentimes in Southern Ontario, we think, oh, Toronto, because that's the big city, right? Yeah. And I'd spent, you know, I'd spent some time, uh, yeah, I'd been to Toronto before. Until then, I'd never been to Hamilton. Uh, you know, I knew the sort of Hamilton reputation, tough steel town and, 
and it's one thing I find amongst Mac grads, we all sort of share is this, you know, love for the city and an appreciation. I mean, I'm, you know, fairly quick to defend Hamilton when somebody, you know, gives it a, uh, you know, besmirches its good name because it is, it is a phenomenal, phenomenal city, especially the Westdale and West End areas uh, in and around Mac treated me really, really well while I was there and, and loved it. You know, my issue with Toronto is it was almost too big. It was, you know, it's such a jarring sort of difference from, from smaller East Coast cities. And Hamilton's got that nice balance. It's still, you know, big and metropolitan. Well, at the same time, you get into that West Side and you might as well be in any small town anywhere in Canada. It really is a, a different environment, not one that sort of most people expect when they think of Hamilton. So you talked a little bit, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, water and, and the impact. And we'll talk a little bit about because that has been a very important part of your career. But did you make the decision to come back to the East Coast easily? Because I think, you know, sometimes that's a, it's a struggle for people, right? Like you leave, you think you need to go, you go to school, you get another job here. And then it's like, is it drawing you back? So was that a, was that a challenge for you to make that decision to return? I mean, when I returned, I came back. So my my grandfather was uh, dealing with some health conditions in Newfoundland. And I actually grew up in New Brunswick originally from Newfoundland. And I, you know, I, I didn't have, I hadn't lined up a, a job upon graduation. Um, so I figured I'd come, I'd do six months in Newfoundland and then head back. So in that sense, it was, it was, it was easy, but it was unexpected that, that I would remain here, you know, for the rest of my career. I, when I got here, I, you know, I, all through Mac, I, I worked at in Hess Village. I want to go way back. Uh, I started at uh, Billy Bob's, which was a legendary location back in the day. Um, and so when I got to Newfoundland, I you know went straight down to George Street and, and got a bartending job. But of course, I had this fresh new diploma and wanted to make sure it didn't go to waste. I heard the university was hiring research engineers, and I applied. And that led me into, you know, the next nine years, I built training simulators for marine applications. So primarily for uh, lifeboat training, that job took me all over the world to various offshore platforms, training institutes. Yeah, I mean, it really sort of started me on this path that uh, I certainly didn't anticipate when I, I came out here for what was supposed to be a six month stint. Do you think you'll stay in Newfoundland? Uh, my wife is uh, born and raised and we both would would prefer to stay if, if you know we can we've got a, a home and a life here uh and newfoundland really is it's a you know it's a phenomenal place especially once you have kids that really sort of changes your your perspective a bit but the culture here uh and being near the ocean it's you know the idea of sort of leaving that it embeds itself it becomes you know a, a, a part of your identity and the idea of of heading inland is uh not necessarily something I, I relish, let's say. Um, so no, I think I think Newfoundland is likely to be where where we stay. Yeah, it, well, it's interesting, right? Like we live beside a great lake. We are actually on the edge of the great lake, right? At the tip of a great lake, but it's not the same as the ocean and it's not the same as Newfoundland, which is for those listeners who have not been to Newfoundland, go to Newfoundland. It is it is a beautiful, beautiful province. I, I have great memories of it, though. I just, I don't know if I could take the weather in July when it's like five degrees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, uh, our June was a little bit cold. It doesn't, the interesting thing in Newfoundland is it, it doesn't get very cold here. Uh, the ocean acts as a sort of regulator of our climate. Now, the flip side of that is it means that you often find yourself uh, shoveling snow in the rain, um, which is not something that anybody should do if they can avoid it. 
But for the July and August, the two months in the summer that we do get, it is the greatest place on earth. There you go. So let's return to the to the seas. And you've had some very interesting um, adventures in your roles after McMaster um, involving the season, including being shanghaied by a client for two weeks. So why don't we talk a little bit like there's some experiences with NATO. You were shanghaied for two weeks um, on, on the sea, um, the Avro Aero test model. I mean, wow. I'm just like, you should write a book. It, uh, <laughs> I've been very, very lucky. Um, when I, I, as I say, I spent nine years building training simulators wanted a new adventure and there was a, a new startup in Newfoundland uh, at the time called Kraken Sonar Systems. It was exciting. It was, you know, a young team that was trying to do really big things and, and you know, disrupt a fairly major industry. And I hopped on board and, and didn't look back. We developed uh, synthetic aperture sonar systems, so really high resolution sonar systems. Um, and one of the first big jobs I got to go on was the Avro Aero search, which was incredible. And effectively, we were looking for the test models that have been launched in Point Petrie, just outside of Kingston, back in the 50s. Uh, when that program was was disbanded and broken up, they literally destroyed everything. They melted down planes. They, And so the only piece, the sort of relics that were remaining were these test models that people have been looking for for 50-odd years. One of my old Mac buddies, I called him at one point, and he's a big diver in Lake Ontario. And I said, you know, I'm going to be up your way. I'd love to catch up. And see you. And he said, Oh, you know, where, where are you going? I said, Kingston. He said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, you know, it's a, it's a contract, private contract. I can't really get into any of the details right now. He said, what are you bringing up? I said, uh, an autonomous vehicle with uh, a synthetic aperture sonar system. He said, you're looking for the Avro models, aren't you? <laughs> and I, you know, I sort of stumbled a little bit and it was a few weeks later when I finally said, Tom, how did you know that? He said, it's, it's what everybody's been looking for in this lake for, for 50 years. It was a incredible experience, two months of uh, continuous operations, and we managed to find uh, not one but two um, of the missing models. So considering that there's been dozens of searches for them over the last 50 years and we were the first ones to find them, uh, that was really exciting, really great to be a part of, sort of Canadian history. So, you know, why is it so hard to find things under the ocean? <sighs> under the ocean is a really inhospitable environment. Um, and it's, you know, we think of space as being inhospitable for life, but, you know, space, the, the, the pressure delta between space and uh, sea level is an atmosphere, which is to say that, yes, space is a vacuum, but the amount of pressure is involved, the forces involved aren't, in fact, that great. When you go down subsea, the weight of that water above you creates incredible amounts of pressure. Um, and to get down to the depths, you know, the Titanic is uh, at about 4,800 meters. And you're talking about massive, massive, massive amounts of pressure. Uh, most vehicles, the sort of pressure ratings for underwater systems, shallow water stuff, usually 100 to 300 meters. Standard depth ratings, 1,000 meter. Then you go to 3,000 meter. And then you go to 6,000 meter. And then the all ocean rating of sort of 10,000 meters plus. It is just, it is very, very difficult um, between the pressure and the salt, you know, a lack of light, a lack of communication. It's a difficult environment. And, you know, the, the, the Titan accident tragedy is, is a hard one because the subsea world is, it's a pretty tight community. I, you know, my phone rang early Monday morning and 
you know, I knew when folks were asking me some questions then that, that, uh, it was a really, really difficult situation. I know some of the crew I've met Stockton rush. Um, you know, I've, 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 anybody in the subsea world, you know, was, was aware of it and aware of it pretty quickly because news travels very fast within the industry. And it was a hard one. It's a complex situation. Uh, there's going to be a lot of review, but it was especially hard during that period to watch the news and listen to the media and listen to a lot of people who really don't know what they're talking about, sort of sound off on it. That was an interesting experience for me, both knowing people involved, but also sort of being on the sidelines, watching the rest of the world comment on it. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a difficult one. And it will change, you know, aspects of, of subsea exploration and, and subsea excursions, absolutely. So the work that you've been involved with, I mean, you know, just even talk, like when we were talking about the, the discovery of the Avril Arrow, which people have been looking for for a long time, you've got highs and you've got lows, right? Like that's sort of the highs and the lows. So how did you manage that in your career and your own personal life that you're doing work that it's an incredible high and then it's, oh, it may be not so much. Or then, then you go to the, you know, the mundane of life. So how do you manage, how did you manage that? I tell you, it's interesting. And it's, it's particularly interesting watching the younger generation because mental health is something that they talk about so much more openly and so much more freely than, you know, we certainly did 20 years ago, but it's so important because it is the stresses of life dealing with, you know, professional burnout. And as you say, dealing with the highs and lows, the transitioning from spending, you know, a week working 14, 16 hour days uh, on a boat 400 miles offshore, you know, and coming back and caring for a six year old, it's, it's not easy. I, you know, early, early in my career, if you'd ask me, I might've said that, you know, working on spaceships or, uh, you know, submarines, manned vessels of different types would have been something I'd really want. And at this stage, uh, I'm more than happy to deal with robots um, where human lives aren't involved because the stress that goes along with that is it's, it's not easy, but we are getting so much better about talking about mental health, about talking about burnout and stress and all of these things. Um, And I, you know, I'm really hopeful that that the next generation is not necessarily going to have to find the coping strategies that we sort of had to find while we were out there in the middle of the field um, because they're sharing these strategies amongst themselves. They're talking about it you know, before it becomes a problem, which I, I think is absolutely brilliant. Did the, did the pandemic change your, change your job, your role? I had a very different pandemic experience than most. So I'm, I was the head of the uh, electrical engineering department. And as a department lead, I was one of a handful of people that I was in the office, you know, when it first hit, I think I was home for about a week and a half until we all sort of went, all right, this isn't going away. How do we deal with this? How are we going to, you know, keep doors open and keep people employed? And, and so I ended up in the office every day, uh, me and, and a small contingent of other folks. If anything, you know, the stress and strain that came along with that of trying to, to you know, keep things going uh, changed my perspective a bit about, you know, what's important about life. I think a lot of people had that sort of realization through that period. I spent, you know, I spent a lot of time um, working, and in hindsight, you know, should have found a better balance at the time, um, but learned a lot, learned a lot about myself, learned a lot about, you know, what's important. And ultimately, you know, sort of through that process, uh, I've actually very recently changed careers. Um, I'm still in subsea robotics, but I've gone back to sort of the startup world. And part of that for me, a new adventure, I always love a new adventure. But the other side of it was trying to find a bit of a better work-life balance. 
because through the pandemic, that was something that I did not do very well. Uh, it was certainly, an, you know, an interesting experience. Well, that's interesting. So let's talk about, you're going returning to the entrepreneur world. Um, but it's interesting because most people who who are in that world say, I need to get out of it to get a better work-life balance. So you're kind of the opposite. So what what is it that makes it attractive for you to leave like a full-time secure job and and head off? Like, I mean, you know, part midlife crisis because I'm at that age where it's uh, it was due. Um, there is something you're too young to have a midlife crisis right now. <laughs> oh, thank you. You're too young for that. <laughs> uh, uh, there's something about a startup, and this is the third startup I've been with. So when I first started my career, that was a startup of five or six people. Kraken, when I joined, was I think there was 15 or 16 of us. There's now you know close to 300 globally, and I've gone back to a company of again about you know 18 to 20 folks. There was something really fun about a company at that stage. Still figuring things out, process development. You know, it's a time when everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows what everybody else is doing and how every other system works. You're all focused on moving in the same direction. And you don't have to deal with a lot of the sort of administrative burdens that come along with being a big global defense company. It's exciting. It's, you know, you're, you're really looking at, again, shaking things up, changing the world, changing the way we do things. This new company that I'm with is, is you know, our goal is to develop um, sustainable, environmentally friendly deep sea mining technology. So it's, you know, it's something that appeals to the environmental side of me. I graduated Mac with a engineering and society degree, which is um, engineering with a focus on, on the environment and the impact that engineering has on, on society, both, you know, social and environmental. And so I get to, you know, get back into that world. It, it's, it's exciting. It's, you know, there's risks. I'm at a point, luckily, in my life where where I can take those risks. But yeah, it it more than anything, startup world, it's just it's an exciting adventure, if nothing else. Uh, I highly recommend it, although it can be you know a little stressful as you get going. But I think that's partly I I I thrive on that those situations and being pushed up against the wall. Do you think that? that's what you really like is the beginning part. And then once it gets sort of into a certain point that it's like, okay, I think I need to find something else. I mean, you know, my current uh, sort of experience would indicate that that may be the case. Um, but that said, I do, I like to see a company go from that startup phase. I do really enjoy going through, uh, you know, the middle and up into a successful, sustainable, um, you know, self-sustaining company. All of that has different, you know, pros and cons different things that are, are enjoyable and exciting. I think like anything, you know, you get to a point, you think, okay, I, you know, have I seen what I, all the things I can see here? Have I done what I, you know, what I came to accomplish? And is it time for me to take those experiences and, and share them with someone else? And for me, really, this was an opportunity uh, to take all of the experiences I've had and bring it to a company that's, you know, I think is trying to do some really, really great things. So, to, you know, to, to be in the startup world um, and some of the work you've done, you have to be comfortable with risk. And it's, it's sometimes like the work and what we're doing, it, it can be scary. So how did you get your comfort level with your level of risk? Engineering in and of itself, you know, one of the biggest roles of an engineer is risk management. It's something that you've got to figure out pretty quickly you know, how much time, how much money am I going to spend to solve this problem? How big is the risk associated with this issue? 
it's something that you come to fairly quickly in this line of work, uh, that sort of ability to gauge and manage risk. It's also, you know, it's a personal thing. Different people have obviously different levels of risk tolerance. As I say, I've been really lucky in that I'm at a point in my career where I can take this opportunity and walk away from a phenomenal company doing incredible things, you know, going nothing but up, uh, to go all the way back to a, uh, you know, a startup that's trying to shake up the way we do things in the world. So, you know, managing risk, I think like anything, it's experience. The more experience you have dealing with it, and I deal with it, you know, I've dealt with it day to day for almost 20 years now. I've sort of developed those coping skills and that, that ability to, to evaluate and manage it as we go. Uh, I don't always get it right, but I try to take risks where, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Educated risks, uh, managed risks. I, 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 you know, you mitigate as much as you can, but sometimes you get to, you know, jump in. Yeah, no, that's true. That's very true. Uh, so do you, are with the startup, are you in person? Are you hybrid? Are you virtual? So this is, yeah, this has been an, an, a real adventure for me. So the company, uh, the robotics office is actually based in Collingwood, Ontario. So Okay, just a second here. Deep sea mining in Collingwood, Ontario. <laughs> There's yeah. kind of a disconnect there. I know it's on Georgian Bay, but still, that's not deep <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, One of the company founders, uh, Jason Gillum, who's a Waterloo grad, and he's from Collingwood. And so when they started the company up, uh, they made the, the decision to, to host the robotics office in Collingwood, tap into the local industry, tap into local connections. And, you know, Lake Ontario offers a, a, a really good test bed for early stage development. And the reality is, you know, coming out and doing at sea operations uh, are going to be costly and expensive regardless of where you live. True. Um, so I think it was a, a balanced decision. And, you know, Collingwood's such a beautiful town, um, great people. You know, it's been working really well for Impossible Metals so far, and, and, you know, hopefully things continue. So talk to me a little bit about what you're hoping to do with deep sea mining and, like, what exactly is that? So I know deep sea mining, I, in my mind, I can kind of think what it is, but, but what is it? Like, and, and what are you trying to um, accomplish with the company? Well, it's, it's interesting because it gets a little confusing with my career because I spent a large chunk of my career in mine countermeasures looking to find and deal with, uh, uh, you know, military sea mines. Now I'm in mining, but a very different kind of mining. So scattered throughout the Pacific, what are known as polymetallic mineral nodules. And these are small sort of potato shaped rocks that are really high, really dense in rare earth metals. So uh, cobalt and copper and nickel, um, all the types of metals that you need to build batteries. Right now, the terrestrial sources for those metals are both very limited and, you know, the, the demand is far outstripping supply. We've known about these nodules for, you know, 100 plus years, um, but they are deep. They are between four and 6,000 meters deep, which, as we discussed earlier, is it's difficult to get down to those depths um, and operate. And the economic model just sort of hasn't been there. The existing technologies for mining those metals um, involves dredge mining, where effectively you take a, a vacuum cleaner, throw some tank treads on it, and put it on the ocean floor and hoover uh, about six inches of the bottom. All of that gets sucked up to a, a surface vessel and a huge sediment plume is then pumped back out. It is the definition of an environmental disaster. It's just, it's an awful approach 
to mineral harvesting. And so what Impossible Metals is trying to do is to develop a robotic platform that will go down and pick rocks off the seafloor without making contact with the seafloor. So robotic arms on the bottom of a of a um, autonomous vessel that will pick up these modules, throw them into a hopper, dynamically adjust its buoyancy on the fly, collect you know 25 plus tons of material, um, and then bring it to the surface, all while minimizing the environmental impact. So using AI and uh, machine vision systems to identify both the minerals that we want, but also to identify any uh, biomass, uh, any animals that are living on these rocks, skip those, move on to the next one. We also plan on doing uh, selective harvesting where we expect to leave some percentage of material behind for the local ecosystem. You know, it's a balance. It's not a perfect solution. Leaving everything untouched is the perfect solution, but we don't live in a perfect world. These are resources that if we want to move to an electrified future, we're going to need. And so our goal is to figure out how we can harvest those while producing the sort of least amount of, of negative environmental impacts possible. That's the goal. Uh, we're you know well on our way. We've done some technology demonstrations in, in Lake Ontario and are now moving into the phase where we're going to start uh, some deep sea testing uh, of the systems and platforms. So it's it's exciting. Um, because it, it's it's going to make a big impact on the future if we can find a, a good way to harvest these materials. So this may be, not be fair to ask you that, but like, how soon do you think we're going to be in a, an electric world, like more and more driven by battery and, and what? I mean, it's it's such a hard question because it brings in a lot of questions about infrastructure and how quickly can we, uh, you know, the reality is we need to move there as fast as we can. You know, climate change, we're all dealing with it. I mean, I was out at a place where I've been summer after summer after summer last week. Uh, and, you know, the black flies were out at a time they're not normally out. The weather was, you know, in a state that it, it isn't normally in. And so, you know, we need to make this progress as quickly as we can. Um, and so any technology that's going to help us get there faster is going to be key. I've got an electric vehicle in the driveway. You know, the future is now. Anybody who I know that's made that switch over, you know, isn't looking back. And the economics for it are becoming better and better and better. So um, it's going to happen quickly, mainly because it has to. We don't really have a choice. Uh, we've got to get there. We've got to get off of our, you know, fossil fuel reliance um, and into a, a world where, you know, it's livable for everybody. So because you've had such an interesting and varied career, did you have a master plan? in your first year as a McMaster student? Not in the least. <laughs> you know, I, the whole adventure of going to Mac was, it, it sort of, you know, not that it took over, but it certainly dominated. And I just, I, you know, I figured I'd figure it out as I went. I knew that I wanted to be doing, you know, computer engineering. When I got into first year, Mac does a, a general engineering first year. Um, so when you go in, you apply to first year engineering and you don't really know what stream you're going to get in, which is a phenomenal way to go because I can't tell you how many of my peers uh, in first year said, I'm going to do Mac or I'm going to do and ended up in, you know, EngPhys or any of the other disciplines uh, after learning more about them. I I did know that computer engineering was likely the, the you know, faculty I was going to end up with. But beyond that, no. And if you told me then, you know, where my career would take me, I, I would not have believed it. Um, you know, I found myself 
you mentioned earlier getting Shanghai. I, I had a client that was supposed to be doing some inshore testing um, and turns out that they didn't get the authority to do that testing or approval to do that testing from the local authorities. I was told we were staying in port and we started steaming out. And before I knew it, you know, we were sort of a hundred nautical miles offshore. And I went up to the bridge and said, what's going on? And they said, well, we didn't get approval to do inshore testing. So we've got to leave the exclusive economic zone. And I said, well, that's 200 nautical miles. They said, yeah, we're actually going to do 300. We get a test area we're going to go to. You know, I spent the next two weeks um, not knowing where I was getting off or when. My wife was not exactly happy, but it was an incredible adventure. Uh, it was exciting. And if I, you know, if you told me that that would be where my career would bring me in some unknown place, you know, 400 miles off the coast of Portugal, I never would have believed it. But here I am. And, you know, it's it's one of the great things about not having a plan is you often end up in, in really unexpected places. So as an engineer, engineers tend to be, you know, they're builders, they're thinkers. Yep. They like to tinker. Yep. And you like to do that, I think, in your own personal life. I'd like to know about the um, automated indoor garden. I'm, an in, I'm a gardener. So, so what on earth have you built? And what, so tell me about this. Of all of my pandemic experiences, that's one that I think I, sh I share with some people uh, that sort of, you know, getting into to gardening of some sort. In Newfoundland, you know, as we discussed, the weather here is not always conducive to uh, uh, gardening per se. And it's something that I always had an interest in. And to a certain extent, it, you know, it became how I dealt with stress. I wanted to, I started with a single tent and I wanted to just build a basic, you know, soil-based plot, uh, have some uh, herbs, some jalapenos, some cilantro, some basil, see how it goes. Do I have a green thumb? Do I not? My mother has the greenest of thumbs. I thought, did I get any of that? You know, before I knew it, I was running, you know, two tents, a hydroponic system, some uh, microgreen boxes. Being an engineer, you know, sometimes you got to over-engineer it. So there's uh, moisture sensors, uh, an automated watering system, automated pH and diluted salt meters. And yeah, it sort of self-balances. I got to keep the, the water basin topped up um, with a nutrient solution, but otherwise it sort of manages itself. And it's fantastic. Uh, you know, this morning I made some eggs and some tomato and a little bit of basil, popped down fresh out of the garden, uh, a couple of jalapenos and away I went. But if anything, it, as I say, it, it really, it became a, a, a stress reliever for me. You know, that act of sitting down and getting your hands in the soil and there's just something really satisfying about it. And so, yeah, three years later of all of the sort of, you know, pandemic hobbies that we got into, uh, that is one that I have, have continued and, and, and love it. Well, I always find gardening keeps you, it's good for the soul, um, but it also keeps you humble because it's like that plant, something can happen. And it's like, all right, you, you spent hours tending that jalapeno and it decides one day that's it for it. <laughs> uh, one of the things with, with my job and dealing with clients, especially when you're dealing with, uh, you know, NATO defense clients, you know, sometimes that phone can ring and you've got a team that's mid operation uh, and they need support and they need it now. And, you know, towards the sort of later half, you know, once I got sort of seniority, if I was being sent on site, it's because there was, you know, a problem that, that needed attention. And I got a phone call at one point, can you go to Iceland? Yeah. When do I need to go? Can you go tomorrow? Yeah, I can go tomorrow. Uh, on the plane I got, now keep in mind, 
Iceland, I'm told it's a beautiful country. I'm told there's lots of great sights to see. What I can tell you is that January, uh, second week of January is not the best time to go to Iceland. Two hours, two and a half hours of sunlight a day, it, it's, it's a real trip. Uh, it ended up being a fantastic trip. You know, issues were relatively easy to sort out. Client was really great. Uh, local hosts were fantastic. But I, when I left, I neglected to turn on some systems on my garden. Um, and when I came home, I had an infestation. And it was the first time I dealt with that in an indoor gardening situation. And of course, you know, outdoor, you get aphids. Well, you know, there's ladybugs, there's other sort of indoor, you don't have those uh, complementary species. And the aphids had a field day. I fought the war, and unfortunately, I lost that battle. But the great thing about, you know, controlled environment farming, shut it all off, replanted, and I was back up and running, you know, a month or two later. Yeah. I learned a lot from that one. Yeah, keep it humble. So where do you think you're going to be in three to five years? What do you think you'll be doing? I, you know, I hope uh, continuing to revolutionize uh, deep sea mining. Our sort of technology roadmap for the next few years doesn't see us sort of going fully operational for the next three to four years. A lot of testing and development and, you know, proving out the technology uh, between now and then. So the goal at that point really is, is uh, hopefully to be, flipping sort of deep sea mining on its head and, and changing the way people look at that industry. It's funny because early in my career, or even if, you know, if I was at Mac and you'd ask me, you know, what are your, what are your career goals? I probably would have said, you know, I want to be uh, you know, VP of engineering or a, a chief technology officer or some sort of C-level, you know, really high executive. And what I've learned throughout my career is that I really like being hands-on. I like being at the ground level. Um, I like being involved and I've, you know, I've gotten to experience the sort of higher levels of management and realize that that, you know, there's a happy medium sort of in a middle management kind of area where, you know, you don't have to deal with all the stresses and strains of, of uh, you know, the things that, that your senior execs need to be worrying about. You get to keep your finger on the pulse of the company, you get a sense for, for how things are going and, and you get to get your hands dirty. And that's something that I've loved throughout my career. Um, I'm someone that likes to get down into the dirt, uh, you know, put me on a boat, let me get at it. And it, you know, it keeps your skills sharp and you learn a lot. And I'm, you know, the, the experience you gain from, from that, the joy of, you know, being at that level, interacting with customers, seeing their uh, excitement when, you know, everything's working and they're getting the data. And yeah, it, it's funny how I've sort of shifted that view to, I'm really happy where I am now um, and happy not necessarily to see myself, you know, I, I don't have that interest to get up into sort of executive level. I'll leave that to other folks. Let me run an engineering team and, and build cool technology. And, and that's where I'm happiest. Well, I think that also comes with experience, right? Because oftentimes people think, oh, you need to do that. But as you, as you rise up, there's different stresses, different problems. And you, and you kind of, you kind of really distance yourself from actually the work that you first started to do and to love. So I think that's something that, you know, when you graduate, you don't really think about, but then we work so many years of our lives. We need to find something you love. And I looks to you like you found something you love and, and makes you like happy to go to work. I I'll never forget early, early in my career, I had a co-op student come to me at one point and he said, you know, Andrew, what do I need to do? What type of engineering should I do to make the most money? And I said, man, you're asking the wrong question because if all you do is chase 
the dollar and you end up doing something that you don't, you aren't passionate about, then you're probably not going to end up being very good at it. And so figure out what you love. You know, the old, the, the, the classic, uh, find what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. You know, the older I get, the more I realize just how true that really, really is. Um, you know, it's not about the money. It's not about, you know, the titles. Uh, it's about quality of life. It's about enjoying your time. You know, I'm two weeks into a new, uh, a new start. Uh, and I still feel like I'm on vacation. It's, it's just been, you know, fantastic because I really do enjoy what I do. That in terms of advice for young students, you know, top of the list, find what you love, find what you're passionate about. It's not always easy, but that needs to be your goal. Everything else will fall into place. So as we wrap up our time together, I always like to end with a few rapid fire questions. And the one I always like to start off with is what's your favorite memory from your time at McMaster? There are, there are so many. Uh, I lived a bit of a sort of double life at Mac. Uh, on the one hand, you know, I was an engineer. I was a red suit. I was super plumber one year. And on the other, I was a, a theater minor. I was involved in stage productions and had, you know, an incredible sort of series of experiences there. Uh, you know, the fall major in the kitchen, 2005, I want to say, was, you know, one of my, my absolute favorite experiences on the engineering side. There was an event we used to do called Dustin, and we did it in partnership with uh, Western U of T, Brock, I think Concordia was there. And effectively, there would be a committee, they would pick a small town somewhere in southern Ontario, and all of the schools would then bus, you know, three, four busloads of engineers into that town, and we'd go and have a sort of social night. And we had one in Paris, Ontario. And it was, it was just one of those, the mayor was out, you know, you met all the locals, they couldn't figure out why 500 engineering students would descend on, on Paris. But we just, we had a great night. We had, everybody had a good time. Uh, the locals were, you know, blown away by the whole thing, but thoroughly enjoyed it. We got to dump a bunch of engineering money into the local economy uh, and everybody, it worked out well for everybody. That was, that was a good one. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard of that before, but I don't think Paris, Ontario would know. I mean, you basically triple think the size of Paris, Ontario. One night. Um, is there any, what book are you reading right now? Do you have time to read a book? I do. And I'm a mix. I've been on the audiobooks a lot lately. I recently finished Idaho Falls, which is uh, a book about the SL1 nuclear accident, which most people haven't heard of, but it was the first major nuclear accident. Um, in nuclear power generation, uh, recommended by my brother, the medical physicist who works at OPG in nuclear power. Um, and then the one I'm reading right now is All Our Wrong Todays by Elan Maste. And it's this interesting story of a guy who sort of grew up in the, in the tomorrow that was envisioned in sort of the 50s and 60s. Power was free and technology sort of created this sort of utopia. And he's a bit of a klutz and finds himself in our timeline, ultimately, uh, through some some mistakes. And it's this sort of, you know, self-reflective look at, you know, what's important and what's not. And um, it's really, it's it's been excellent. Highly recommend. Okay. And what's your idea of perfect happiness? Uh, my wife's parents had a cabin in, in a little harbor called Pope's Harbor in, uh, out towards Random Island, and it's the type of place you drive to the end of the road, you get to this place called Burgine's Cove, you get in a boat, it's about a 30 minute run up the sound. 
there is no cell reception. There are no roads. There is no power. It is as off grid as you can get. You hop in a boat in the morning, you go out, you know, catch or catch a cod, bring it in, you cook it that night. And it is just, you know, peace and tranquility writ large. Um, so Pope's Harbor with my wife and my daughter are, are my idea of sort of the perfect happiness. Excellent. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today on our um, unconventional podcast. You've had a really unconventional career. I mean, you're, you're an engineer at heart. I know that. Um, but, you know, something that, you know, if you'd, I, 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 like I said, I don't think I've ever met an engineer that in all the time being in the alumni office that is focused so much on water and, and, and the sea and everything. And it's just, it's just really interesting to see what you've done with your career and the risks you're taking and the happiness and joy you're getting from it. So thank you very much for joining us. No, thank you, Karen. I, uh, I appreciate it. And, you know, to all the young people out there, go and go for an adventure, uh, you know, take risks um, try new things because you, you, you know, you don't know where you're going to end up and that could be on a boat in the middle of the ocean somewhere. Um, you never know, but it's, uh, the unconventional path often leads to some of the greatest adventures. Mm -hmm.